uh, mentally for the context of this psalm. The specific con- context we don't know. Um, but it is a preparation for battle. Uh, one can see a mustered army standing in formation with flags, banners, standards set high and waving in the wind in formation, regimental formation and whatnot. The king is before his army and there is a kind of exchange going between the, the army and the king himself. It is a kind of prayer for the victory that is, uh, uh, that is before them and the confidence that those who go forth in the word and the will of God will return doubtless rejoicing, carrying their sheaves with them. So that's kind of the picture that is seen here uh, as we look at Psalm 20. And uh, imagine that in your mind's eye as we read this. Please follow along and I'll read the psalm in its totality. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offenses and regard with favor your burnt offerings. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May he shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of the Lord, in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving God, pour out your spirit upon us at this time. Join your spirit to your word that it might do its work within us. May you work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And may we in return give glory to Christ our King and our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 20 is one of many in the Psalter that we call royal psalms because they concern the regal office of David. And not just David, but his dynasty as well, those who follow after him, his subsequent offspring. These psalms tend to be among the most messianic because they anticipate and they foreshadow the greater son of David, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the anointed is mentioned here, which ought to raise interest 
in our minds. In the context, Psalm 20 is a prayer for military victory over the enemies of God's people in particular, over the nation of Israel, the covenanted people of God. The victory, and it's a prayer for victory as David, their king, is preparing to go off to war. But we don't know what, what, the, what this one of the many battles that David did fight in his warring years, uh, subduing the enemies of God's people. We don't know which one this might have been. Choose one, if you will. It pictures a mustered army gathered in military formation. Standards are high. Banners are waving in the wind. They're mentioned in verse 5. And it recognizes that ultimate victory is not to be found in the accoutrements of war, but in the power and faithfulness of the King of Kings. And that is this psalm's great and wonderful value. It begins as a prayer, a pronouncement of benedictions upon the king for his success, that God would smile upon him and grant him success as they prepare for battle. And this preparation for battle, interesting, is not in, in maneuvers, but the preparation is in worship and in prayer for their commander and their chief. So this is a worshipful psalm. First, a couple comments about the superscription. And I may have mentioned these things similarly in the uh, previous times I was here on the Psalms. But it's, uh, it, it, we are told that it is written to the choir master. And David's Psalms, these Davidic Psalms, are often were written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then handed over to the director of worship who would put it to appropriate worship music so that the congregation could lift these prayers up to the Lord in the corporate worship of God. And so we are reminded that the song was created for worship. Even a psalm about this military victory was set in the context of worship, given from David to the choir master. However, let us keep the larger context in mind. Though a song created for worship, it was crafted in the midst of distress. The nation, the people of God, were experiencing a day of trouble. My title for this psalm is Prayer for the Day of Trouble. Its follow-up next week, Psalm 21, is Praise for the Day of Triumph. So it's a response. The two psalms, 20 and 21, are coupled together. And one is prayer, one is response. Um, And so think of them as belonging together. Some have even suggested that they somehow uh, belong as one, uh, although I don't think that is a best take on it. So in the days of distress, 
days of distress call for us to rest in God's promises and to trust in his unfailing love. I'll say that again. Days of distress, which clearly we are facing in this land. If you're not living in some measure of angst, I hope not overwhelmed by it, but I think we all are kind of a little bit nervous uh, about what is in store for the nature. Maybe we think we will get through it, but then we start thinking, what about our grandkids? What kind of world is, is coming their way um, when we are not around anymore to counsel and to comfort? But in days of distress, it calls for God's people to rest in God's promises. That's where we should be camped out at. That's where our minds should be fixed. And trusting in his unfailing love. These, though these are most certainly distressing days, we see here how believers in the past ages would face uncertain times and weather the storms of life. That's what makes the psalm so valuable because as a whole, they do show us how to pray when things seem to be going awry. They help us to weather the storms of life. And in short, they are weathered with words. Words that form promises that remind us of of who God is and what he has done for us. That's what we need to be hearing and receiving on a regular regular basis. It is the power of the word that will not return void, but will accomplish that which was attended in our life, in our life corporately as a church, in our life as the larger people of God. Words of benediction, words of consolation, words of expectation. This psalm gives them all. We call them good words, gospel words, and glorious words are given to us in this psalm. Let's look at the good words. That's what benediction means, by the way. Benediction means good words. Benny, good, diction, you can hear Uh, the idea of speech and so forth. Benediction, good words. We usually pronounce a benediction at the end of a worship service and we are left with the good words of Christ spoken by the minister. And we take that out with hearts full of his love and grace. Verses 1 through 5 is like an extended benediction. Uh, All uh, crafted in a way that, that, that pronounces a kind of wish, a fulfillment. May the Lord do this. May the Lord do that. May the Lord continue to work in your life. That's how benedictions are often crafted. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The psalm is a prayer for the king from the people in this unspecified day of distress. It is praised, it is framed as a series of blessings upon the king, upon the leader 
of the covenant people of God. So in substance, this prayer pleads for the Lord to answer and protect. Verse uh, verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, the theme of the psalm, and may the name of the Lord your God protect you concerning the distress that is at hand. That it's unspecified is very helpful to us because we're not prone to fix it on a particular occasion. And it makes it very easy to apply it to our own situation. And do we not, and ought we not, to also pray for God's blessing in that he would answer and protect his church, his people during such times as these. The prayer also pleads for the help and support from the Lord. May he send you help from his sanctuary and give you hope from Zion. I love what he's saying here, because using Old Covenant words, mentioning, mentioning the sanctuary and mentioning Zion, uh, both images of the people of God, those, these representatives of God dwelling among his people. In other words, we pray for God's help and support from the store of divine resources. And where does his, where does his divine resources reside? But in the sanctuary, as it were, in worship, in the gathering of God's people, in, in Zion, the city of God, the throne of God, the people of God. We also pray that God, for God to remember and to regard the means of grace. Again, we are speaking in old covenant terms. For example, verse 3, may he remember your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. And what were the burnt offerings? What were these offerings, these gifts in, under the old covenant? But, but pictures of the ultimate gift that would be given to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament was really a picture of the one final sacrifice where the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. And and this is the ultimate means of grace, the hope of the gospel, the Lord Jesus. And we return in worship the offering of praise from our lips and the praise of our substance in order for the work to be continued. May he remember all of your offerings, all of your givings, all of your songs, all of your prayers, all of these offerings, and regard with favor your burnt offerings, these pictures of Christ, these emblems of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus that he might remember and regard the means of grace in our midst, that he might lift us up, transform our lives, and establish our feet on the solid rock. This prayer not only is a plea to answer and protect, to help and support, to remember and regard the means of grace, but to grant 
and to fulfill. Verses 4 and 5. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Like an open check right there. Already signed. Not so fast. May he shout, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. To grant and fulfill. That is to fulfill his promises to his people. Prayer is really nothing more than claiming the promises of God, reminding him what he already knows, and, and asking God to graciously fulfill them in our midst. As far as this open check idea, we're also praying that God would mold our heart that we might delight in the things that are worthy of his name. Yes, he will give you the desires of your heart, but not until we think of what he says in Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If we're delighting in the things of this world, if we're trusting in those things that are unworthy, we would expect a good, gracious Heavenly Father to say, eh, no. <laughs> and uh, that's okay. But the Lord, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, our hearts are tuned to Him and we tend to find ourselves asking for what we should. Now, I have a question. Can we pray this prayer today? This is Old Testament. Can we read this Pray this as a prayer today. And I would maintain absolutely yes. Uh, heart's desire and a responsive return is bound up in our worship and shout for joy. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. May we shout for joy over your salvation. These are, this is worship language. The best place to be in days of distress is not camped out before the stock market, worrying about which way it's going to go, not sitting in front of Fox News or CNN or any other like network. The best place to be is in the house of God, where we rejoice in the Lord our God and keep our hearts fixed there. Now, I'm not suggesting that we bury our heads in the sand, but let us not forget that this is a better place to bury them. This sand is good, good ground, and things will grow in the context of God's Word. And we, too, should be praying God's blessing on our leaders, on our pastors, as we have heard this morning, on our children and the next generation on our parents and those who, are, who are, will be leaving us in a few short years and praying for each other and ourselves. This is a prayer that we can pray in behalf of everyone in this room and beyond. It's a wonderful prayer. In fact, it has been recommended and has been used as a call, as a benediction in some occasions of worship. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. 
May the name of the Lord of, the, of God of Jacob protect you. What a wonderful thought to leave the house of worship with. In days of distress, we need to hear good words. And we're not hearing many. We need good words. And if we, the Christian church, we may be the last bastion on earth that really is disseminating good words. How about gospel words? Verses 6 through 8, to me, is a remarkable verse, a few verses. Because here we shift from the people of God praying for their king, their leader for the king of God's people, and now the king speaks in return. He speaks over them. He, he responds, and isn't that what worship is anyway? It's this response of God speaking and us returning in speech, God speaking and us returning in a hymn of praise and prayer. Now the king, we, we read in verses 6 through 8, now I know, the king speaks here, that the Lord saves his anointed. It's a small a. His Messiah, same thing. He will answer him, he, God, the Lord, will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. This king has confidence that the, Lord, the Lord's blessing will be upon him because the love of this heavenly father will not let the people of God go. Don't we sing that hymn once in a while? Oh, love that will not let me go. He will answer in his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. This is the world. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the king continues, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Confidence of victory confidence of hope, filled with hope. The king, the anointed one, now speaks here. And when he speaks, these are words of comfort. These are gospel words. This is what the gospel is, the announcement that the people of God put their trust in the living God and that he is worthy of our trust. Here he expresses confidence in a work already done before it is done. Did you hear that? He is confident that this work is already accomplished, even though it hasn't happened yet. And this, of course, is what gospel hope is. It is trusting in the Lord with all of our heart and leaning not unto our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledging him, knowing that he will direct our paths. Ultimately, Christ is our king. David was only a foreshadowing of the king. He was the anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one. David was an anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. The Westminster Confession asks, how is Christ our king? 
And we read, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It would appear to me that this psalm is a virtual commentary on the Westminster Shorter Catechism question on how is Christ a king, number 26. It's a question that is worth asking. That David prayed this. Do you suppose David's greater son could have prayed this prayer as well? I believe he could. I think there's a real likelihood that Jesus prayed Psalm 20 as he was walking the so-called Via Della Rosa, as he was suffering for our sin, as he was descending further into his hell on earth. Perhaps he contemplated Psalm 20 on the cross. Yes, this is speculative, but Jesus' prayer and thoughts at the time were all found in this psalm. Jesus could say, now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He bore, he broke the bonds of death and he tore open the cords that bound the stone in front of the, uh, the, the prison that his body was laid in and he came forth triumphant from the grave. He will answer from his holy mountain. Yes, the Lord responded, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he showed his good pleasure, not ending his life on the cross, but causing him to rise and come from an empty tomb with his saving might of his right hand. And the Father's steady hand brought Christ out of the grave. A question worth asking and a thought worth remembering. The key verse in this psalm is verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. This is what we would hope to hear from our beloved king, wouldn't we? This is who we would want to hear from David or David's greater son. That some trust in horses and chariots, but we, the people of God, trust in the name of of the Lord our God, knowing that the world and its ways in due course will collapse and fall, but the church will remain. That we trust in his name. We rise and stand firm, which we call, we are called here to a certain frame of mind, which raises the question, wherein does our trust rest? Wherein does it rest? Certainly, it should rest in the hope of the gospel in the Lord Jesus. But even, even when we confess that and recognize it, the season of life that we live may distract us from that. We need to be brought back and know that our hope rests alone in him. Psalm 33, verse 6, is very similar to this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the children of man. 
from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the heart of them all and observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army, or a warrior, uh, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Add what you will to this list. All the maneuverings and human attempts to get its own way in the end will vanish. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in the flames. This has been the story of the Bible. All the way through, it's, it's uh, cameo accounts of God's people, of God preserving his people through the darkest hours. Let us not fall into that trap during times that bring great concern. Good words, gospel words, glorious words. Verse 9, what a place to end. O Lord, save the king. Sounds a little British here. May he answer us when he call. Alec Motier takes a little different take that intrigues me, and I'm, in, and I'm inclined to think that he might be right. Old Testament commentator, solid uh, uh, scholar in the word of God, suggests that a shift in attention from David, the earthly king, to Yahweh, the heavenly king, is taking place here. And that verse 9 lands not on David, not as a return prayer for David, but a praise and worship and a proclamation of the true king of Israel. He would translate it, Alec Motier, in this way. And it's a sound translation. His translation is Lord save. That's our plea. And that's incidentally very biblical. Lord, save. Save us. And it goes on. True king, answer in the day we call. So in the end, this is not a prayer to David. It is a prayer to Jesus. It is a prayer to the king of kings. Where we pray the Lord, the king, to save us. And the Lord, the king, to answer in the day we call. This both fits the context of this psalm, and it fits the whole of Scripture. This, of course, is the name of Jesus means Savior. It means Deliverer. Uh, And here is our final prayer of victory. And if it is so, it is also a confession of our faith in that king of kings and an expression of the truth that he is the sovereign lord psalm 106:47 says this as much save us o lord our god uh, and this during the storm in the lake the disciples turned to jesus sleeping peacefully and quietly in the bow of the boat save us lord we are perishing And Peter, of course, you remember, when he was sinking on the lake himself, 
cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Call upon me in the day of trouble, says the psalmist, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. There is bound up right there the essence of this psalm. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the the wonderful resonance of this psalm. This psalm reminds us that the Christian life is a battle. It always has been and it always will be. But the weapons that we are fitted with, according to 2 Corinthians 10.4, are not the weapons of this world. They are rather suitable for tearing down strongholds and taking every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. There are dangers lurking at every turn, and they always have been. We're just noticing them much more than we have in years past. The Christian life is a battle, but it's a battle that is already won. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We sing that song. Encamped around the hills of light, ye Christian soldiers rise and press the battle ere the night shall veil the glowing skies. Against the foe and veils below, let all our strength be hurled. Faith is the victory, we know, that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith in Christ not some general quality of strength, but a resting in Jesus Christ alone for the victory, for our deliverance. This is the victory that overcomes the world. And Christians always have and always will pray because of this victory that is already achieved. We pray because of a victory that is already achieved. We pray that God would save us, to protect us, to preserve his church, because Jesus has already finished his work. It's already been done. It's not fully complete until he returns, but yet it's already done as far as we are concerned. The next three psalms are, which we'll probably skip over the remarkable psalms of 22, 3, and 4, the cross, the crook, and the crown. And the ideas in these psalms, as well as the two we'll be considering today and next week, are scattered all through the Bible. Patrick Reardon makes this comment on this psalm. The history of Christian piety knows another way of praying Uh, knows another way of praying this psalm. However, namely, as a prayer of the church addressed to Christ himself, who on her behalf mounts the hill of Calvary on the day of affliction, the whole psalm thus becomes an amen to the redemptive work of Christ. So let's all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, may your grace, mercy, and peace be upon us today 
as we face an uncertain world, but we do so in the certainty of God's preserving grace for his people. That he cares for his own, he loves his own. He'd love to see his kingdom extended. May we continue in the work that we have been called to do and do it as we recognize our King of Kings leads us on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.